everyone with an interest in NASH or, more broadly, fatty liver disease, Surf's Up. Season 2, Episode 38 of Surfing the NASH Tsunami starts now. Today on Surfing the NASH Tsunami. I was really surprised when I first started in the breast cancer community as an advocate how little people understood about the disease that they were facing, that they didn't feel like they had the opportunity or even, dare I say, the right to ask questions about what they were going through, that they just felt like if the doctor's giving me the diagnosis, the doctor knows best, and it's up to me to just to show up. If you go into a community that has a high prevalence of, say, NASH, every physician that has to trust the patients ought to know, first of all, what clinical trials is about and what, what they do and how they run, and secondly, what the disease is about, so they can be a resource to their patients. You've got to, we've got to figure out a way to incentivize the physicians to talk to their patients about this kind of disease and, and give them the right information, and that's generally been an issue with respect to a lot of clinical trials that are conducted in the country. An anonymous protocol review I may or may not have participated on, when they requested requirements by gender for men, they led with, you must have a vasectomy. It wasn't clear whether they were going to be giving vasectomies to do it, whether you had to have one coming in. Nope, I'm stopping reading the recruitment thing at that point. Well, I'm pretty sure they did stop. Green on vacation, he invited Donna Cryer, founder and CEO of the Global Liver Institute, to lead Surfing Nash this week. Donna's guests are Jeff McIntyre, director of Nash programs at the Global Liver Institute, patient advocate and breast cancer social media pioneer Alicia Staley, and Dr. James Powell, a national thought leader on recruiting clinical trial patients from underserved communities. Join them as they discuss keys to creating diverse representative patient populations for Nash trials this week on Surfing the Nash Tsunami. It's Roger. I'm actually on vacation this week, so I invited our good friend Donna Cryer to come in and host the podcast for me. As you'll see, it's a little different than what we usually do. I think she described it as patients taking over the podcast, but the topic is fantastic. The guests are brilliant and the insights are tremendous. Have a wonderful time, and I'll talk to you about back-end and business issues a little bit after this podcast is complete. Hello and welcome. My name is Donna Cryer. I am the CEO and founder of the Global Liver Institute, and as many of you know, a frequent guest on this survey the Nash Tsunami podcast. And this is a surfing takeover today. This is a patient riot. This is the day everybody was afraid would happen. It has happened. The patients have taken over the podcast. So my motto, and I think the motto that we share certainly at the Global Liver Institute is it all starts with a patient. So I am very excited to have one of the all-star patient engagement advocates, along with some other experts here today to discuss this fantastic, really important topic, optimizing clinical trials recruitment in NASH. So the focus of today is instead of trial by trial, sponsor by sponsor, patient by patient, how can we really be transformational in approaching NASH clinical trials? I looked it up on clinicaltrial.gov. God love it. There are 1,028 studies in NASH that are listed or registered on clinicaltrials.gov. A smaller subset, 982, in NAFLD recruiting right now. There are 257 NASH trials and 200 
151 recruiting in NAFLD or fatty liver disease. So that's across drug, device, diagnostic. We need anywhere from 30 patients to 200 patients. So if we just say it's about 100 patients per trial, that's like 25,000 patients. So that's a daunting task. I think we need to do bold things. So to help me do bold things and to discuss bold things are my guests today. So I have with me from Global Liver Institute, our NASH program director, Jeff McIntyre. Jeff, say hello. Hello. Lovely to be here. Thank you for having me. Fantastic. Then I have, and I think I need a drum roll for you, Alicia Staley, who is vice president of patient engagement for Metadata. She is the co-founder of the hashtag BCSM or Breast Cancer Social Media, who taught the world how to use social media for good. Remember when that was the case, when we could use social media for good, let alone share information about healthcare, really empower patients. She herself is a three-time cancer survivor and a clinical trial participant. Then I have someone to whom I owe so much. I've learned so much about clinical trials over the years from Dr. James Powell, who has been in the pharmaceutical industry. He has such a wide range of experience. He has been leading the National Medical Association's Project Impact, which has trained principal investigators. He's worked for decades on how to bring more diverse patients into clinical trials so that the medicines are relevant and effective in a diverse population of patients. He's also the Chief Medical Officer of Norex Health. Dr. Powell and Alicia Staley, welcome. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Okay, I've given sort of an overview of this daunting task that we have in NASH, but this isn't the first field that we've had to recruit a lot of patients in. And what I've really wanted to bring in with the benefit of this very diverse and different experience experience that we have on this panel is what we can learn. I'll start with you, Alicia. What can we learn from breast cancer? What has been successful in having trials that patients actually want to participate in and helping patients find the right trials for them? That's a great question. Um, We have an opportunity to learn a lot from the breast cancer community. The breast cancer community in particular has really been at the forefront of, of a lot of advocacy movements over the last decade or so. And I would say that while breast cancer communities have figured out a good way to recruit participants, we still have a long way to go. I I don't think that there's an easy solution to this question by any stretch of the imagination, but I can tell you what's worked in the breast cancer community, and that's collaboration and building collaboratives that historically might have been frowned upon. So having sponsors and companies come together that historically have been considered competitors are starting to collaborate on the concept of the patient. So instead of competing on patients, sort of flipping that equation and really starting to think about ways that we can collaborate for patients. And that really starts with a better baseline of education and understanding about clinical trial opportunities. I think we need to get to a point where we can build better patient to physician interactions and relationships and then take those relationships into the community. This is not a question that we can brute force or just keep throwing money at it and expect it to solve (laughs) solve for putting patients in trials. We need a little old school magic too, where we get back to building better relationships, building true communities of interest when it comes to participating in a clinical trial and start from there and then layer in the tech, if you will, once you've got that better foundation. Without it, I think all these efforts are really 
hamstrung out of the gate. I think that's so right. And we'll get to some of the technical aspects in a moment. Dr. Powell, I think that certainly working directly with communities has to resonate with you. How do you think we can do a better job, particularly of making sure in NASH, there are signals that Hispanic patients might have a greater predisposition, a a genetic predisposition to fatty liver disease and NASH. We know that there are examples of lean NASH or NASH in lean individuals. So we know we need to reach out to Asian populations to make sure that we're understanding those profiles of disease. So how can we make sure that we get a patient population into trials that reflects the population of patients who will need to have NASH drugs? That's also a lot of patients with diabetes and concurrent diseases. I really appreciate you asking me that question because it's one I'm always willing to talk to anybody about. One of the things, the reason people don't do is they just don't have the information. First of all, they don't have the information, but second and probably even more important is where they get the information from. Is it from a source that they feel confident or can trust? Or is it somewhere that, you know, who, who knows? But what the data say, what's been published time and time again, is that if the patient, for instance, have a health care provider or a physician that they trust, that would be the person they would most likely want to get both information about the disease as well as the information about the trial. But the problem is, with respect to trials at least, Physicians don't talk about it. They don't bring it up. They don't get it with respect to people involved in clinical probably less than 10% of physicians in the country participate in clinical trials. And in the minority communities, it's woefully less than that, probably less than 2 or 3%. If it's that many of the physicians that have a trust relationship working with patients have any experience in clinical trials. And one of the things we got from Project Impact now, I can go on forever, so you have to interrupt me because I'll... <laughs> but most people think that being a physician would necessarily train you and have information about clinical research. Well, you may get some exposure to it in your medical training, but for persons in practices, it's not something that's on their daily routine. It's not something that's necessary. They will see results from trials, but the clinical trials process is not for the physician who's in a day-to-day practice. It's not routine. So if you want to have patients more knowledgeable about clinical research, then you have to give them a source of information that they can trust. And usually that's with the physician. Now, some patients who are incentivized, like one of the people on our board was a breast cancer survivor. These people are incentivized to want to know and understand the disease. And they go to the internet and they go and they, they'll ask their doc. They'll do things to find out where the clinical trial is and what it's about. Or they'll ask about their disease and all those kinds of issues. But for this particular case, you really want to make sure what I've been involved in and what I'm trying to do now is create a program that trains every doc that has the trust of patients to understand what clinical research is about. That's what we're trying to do. So if you go into a community that has a high prevalence of, say, NASH, every physician that has a trust of patients ought to know, first of all, what clinical trials is about and what they do and how they run, and secondly, what the disease is about, so they can be a resource to their patients. We've got to, we've got to figure out a way to incentivize the physicians to talk to their patients about this kind of disease and, and give them the right information. And that's generally been an issue with respect to a lot of clinical trials that are conducted in their country. I certainly agree. And Jeff, you have been instrumental in putting together the Global Liver Institute's NASH Council, which is now over 70 members, including a lot of different medical societies. So how do you create that awareness and connect physicians to training, potentially so that patients are going into warm, receptive environments with the physicians that they can trust and can have a conversation about NASH itself and NASH in a clinical trial? It's an overlap of several programs at Global Liver that actually do this. If you think about the NASH page, 
patient. There's kind of a through line for patients, which is originally they would be at risk and then there's screening and diagnosis and disease severity, hopefully with treatment, although there are potential adverse outcomes such as transplant or worse for this. And one of the things that we do at the Global Liver Institute is that there's this kind of through line of programmatic support that, as you say, Donna, we don't just pursue a solution at every stage for the patient, but we are supporting the field of fatty liver disease and NASH at every stage. And this can come about in several different ways. We've got educational materials for International NASH Day. We had, what, 16 different languages they were translated in. International NASH Day itself, it's a multi-country, very successful event as well. We've recently expanded our Liver Action Network, which includes now collaborations with the Liver Coalition of San Diego, the Liver Wellness Foundation, the Mid-South Liver Alliance, the Texas Liver Foundation. And this all builds on other aspects of global liver programs, A3, advocacy, our NASH Council that you mentioned will be doing a patient-focused drug development symposium in late autumn as well. What I have found is that the more that the companies invest in the patients, then the less hard it is for them to recruit into the trials. So many of the clinical trials historically, as we were joking a little bit about, can almost have a little bit of a drive-through quality to it. You know, it's like, okay, you've got your early NASH, let's see, F3, some high blood pressure. Maybe we'll get you a side of diabetes and IBS to go along with that. Great, great, great. Here's your $5, biopsies next door, move along. And patients want a little more than that. They want to make sure that the language is something they understand. Maybe they get the results with them. As you know, I, on behalf of patients, have been blessed enough to participate in some protocol reviews, which really even comes down sometimes to not just the parsing of language, but the order in which the language comes from. I think I can say this safely, but on a an anonymous protocol review, I may or may not have participated on. When they listed the requested requirements, it was it was separated by gender. For women, it was um, you know a certain amount of free time. They were looking for a certain amount of co-occurring disorders. Age was a consideration in the midst of this. When it came to the men, what they led with was you must have a vasectomy, and immediately just stopped reading. It wasn't clear whether they were going to be giving vasectomies to do it, whether you had to have one coming in. It was just, nope, nope, just, uh uh-uh. I'm stopping reading the recruitment thing at that point. Well, I'm pretty sure they did stop. And so that's an easy fix, but it it had to have a patient that, as Dr. Powell said, is invested, is educated, is empowered to meet appropriately a company that is invested, that is educated and empowered about patients. And Global Liver, granted, I'm biased, but we have done a tremendous job and continue to grow in creating the programs that can help the field grow at every stage that they are engaging the patient. Well, Jeff, I think for the very reasons that you cited and so many more, which we could spend an entire episode on, things that should never have been in the protocol. We do not recruit for any trials that do not demonstrate how patients or patient advocates have affected and had insights integrated into the trials. So we have an obligation then to provide patients who are trained, equipped to comment on protocols and participate effectively in protocol reviews and other aspects of research. But we just don't recruit when it's all baked and done and we're handed something that has just non-starters like that. It's not our job to sort of clean up and rescue trials that have been poorly designed without patient input to try to fix for the recruitment side or fix 
tactics on the recruitment side, which should have been done on the protocol development or the site selection side or the site preparation side. So that's why we're happy to help. But Dr. Powell, one of the things that you said about highly incentivized informed patients in breast cancer, I I think a lot, it, it stems, Alicia, from your work, creating that culture of participation in breast cancer, that expectation that you should seek out information. There are places making it easy for people to find credible information. But that expectation on that part of what it means to be a breast cancer patient, that started somewhere. So how did you evolve that expectation, that culture of participation in clinical trials? That's a great question. I started BCSM, which is the hashtag community breast cancer social media, one of our key tenants that we really tried to embrace was this concept of empowerment through education and just allowing people to truly have a better understanding of what they're dealing with. I was really surprised when I first started in the breast cancer community as an advocate, how little people understood about the disease that they were facing, that they didn't feel like they had the opportunity or even, dare I say, the right to ask questions about what they were going through, that they just felt like if the doctor's given me the diagnosis, the doctor knows best, and it's up to me to just to show up. And you sort of challenge through consistent education or opportunities to continue to learn about your disease. I think you start building a better understanding of what works for you personally and what works for you in terms of either your treatment plan or your recovery plan. And from that, it's just natural to develop a state of curiosity about what could be better. How, how can I make this experience better? And when I'm asked to go and speak to other communities about how do we fix clinical trials or how do we better engage the community, I always suggest start with just consistent touch points with your community around education and awareness. And if in the case of NASH, please correct me if I'm wrong, but there are some instances where people even know that they're dealing with that condition. So that in and of itself presents an incredible challenge for education and awareness. So how do you do that in a way that's respectful for the communities of people that might be dealing with this condition and do it in a way that piques their interest and gives them resources, gives them comfort, builds trust in the information that you're sharing. And I would look at it opportunities to build unique partnerships or unique collaborations within the community. And we did some of that in breast cancer social media when we had members that actually did presentations in churches about what Twitter was and what what is a hashtag and how I can find information online. So our tweet chat is now over 10 years old. We still get people that will check in and say, I first learned about BCSM from a church meeting five years ago. (laughs) And I knew that there was a resource for breast cancer. I didn't know that I would ever need it until now. You're sort of planting those seeds of understanding, support, trust, and relationship building that I think becomes so important to this information exchange that has to happen. I couldn't agree more. It's why I'm so excited about how the Global Liver Institute's Advanced Advocacy Academy is supercharged this year. Now that we have all of these community organizations on the ground who will be feeding patients into this program in an exponential way so that they can go back into the communities. I think you're right. Teaching people how to use social media, teaching people how to sign into their patient portal, get their labs. If 
they've participated in a clinical trial, talking to people about what their participation was like. What does it actually look like, feel like? How did it go? What was it like six months into the trial? Did you ever get the information back? And just being able to, to have that many more people, to be able to, to talk in living rooms, in churches, and one-on-one, and -on -one. people that know and, and people that they connect with. So arming them with a little bit of knowledge is always dangerous. Uh, but a little bit of liver knowledge and some background through the Advanced Advocacy Academy. Now being able to do that in partnership with organizations from across the United States and four countries that we have affiliations with, I'm just really so excited to see what that many patients, even in a virtual room, can do together to talk about creating a culture of research. Research that we want to participate in. Research that answers the questions we want answered in NASH and stories that we're excited to tell. Let me suggest that one of the things I think what you're talking about and I want to support is that you create a sustainable presence in the community for understanding, understanding health disease and then clinical trials, understanding health disease and prevention, if you can, if whatever, but then not always clinical trials. Clinical trials is a part of it, but the first thing is a sustainable presence in the community for having people with a level of knowledge to understand what it's all about. Because really, the whole issue of clinical trials boils down to people just fear what they don't understand, what they don't know about it. I've been in many situations, I think I told you about it, Don, I've been in a room with 300 African-American women and me, I think maybe one other male, and they talked to me and they came armed for bear. I mean, well, why, why uh, I was wrong to be advocating for clinical trials. And it, it's really quite pleasant to see the light switch on and when they understand what the issues are, what the health, disease, prevention, and then how clinical trials work with what they have to do. with. That should be across the board. And as Jeff was talking about, it really shouldn't be the helicopter doctors to swoop in and then the factory, you know, the line clinical trials. I've seen people who do clinical trials very well. In fact, some of the people we're trying to work with. And I'll mention this, and he'll know who I'm talking about when he, if he hears this podcast. He had a person at his front desk, director of first impressions, okay, at his, his office. And 99% of the people that did clinical trials with him want to come back and do another clinical trial with him. Because, first of all, it's not always about clinical trials. It's about the best possible care that you can receive and understanding your disease as best. And then clinical trials becomes a part of what you need to do to improve yourself as well as others that may have the conditions that you have. So a sustainable presence is really going to be key if we're going to do it across the board. I absolutely agree with that. Jeff, you've worked in community programs. You've worked with children and families on obesity and across diseases in this preventive health and prevention area before coming into this rarefied advanced liver disease area. So what are your thoughts in terms of really embedding ourselves deeply and sustainably, as we've been talking about, in communities to improve liver health overall? Well, foremost, it's really not that different. What we have now is we are engaging the disease state that is at the end of the path of many of these earlier indicators or behavioral concerns, whether it's lifestyle or nutrition or hereditary things that were not picked up on in early screening in those areas. And so in that way, it's really not that different than the engagement that we have to do there. And I absolutely echo Dr. Powell in terms of when he was speaking about the lack of minority populations and their participation. But I would expand upon that a little bit. We also face this for companies that are doing clinical trials globally to be able to have the sort of 
cultural competence, if you will, to be able to engage cultures, both linguistically, culturally, however it is, to be able to have them with better participation. COVID has shown that. Donna, as you spoke about in one of your GLI lives on clinical trial continuity during during COVID, it presented challenges. And so what are the things that we can learn from that as we begin to try to approach and embed ourselves in other communities? And frankly, this is not something that is solved overnight. It is a dedicated, patient, patient practice, if you will, where we collaborate and, and GLI does, again, I think a phenomenal process, a job of this, of creating programs to empower patients and companies and the stakeholders in the field to work more closely together, to design, to participate, and to share goals, including clinical trials, but also the greater goals. I think it's really easy and has been very easy in the NASH field to get focused on the drug or the FDA or EMA or whatever regulatory shenanigans are going on or the the shiny object of new technologies. But in this NASH centrifuge, if you will, the patient is the center point. It's the main point of commonality around which all NASH stakeholders revolve. And to be able to use an organization such as the Global Liver Institute in collaboration with other organizations, the Canadian Liver Foundation, ASLD, the American College of Sports Medicine, the pharmaceuticals, that there is a bigger process for patients to be involved with because ultimately patients are the goal, not the not the widget that they're working towards. Jeff, I really appreciate you saying that. One of my favorite moments on this podcast was when Joran Schottenberg was asking for, he was trying to figure out how to relate to a family. He's in Germany and the family, I believe, spoke either Arabic or Turkish. And before even talking about the trial, he just needed to talk about Nash with them. And just as we've all been saying, talk about the disease first and their health. And he didn't have anything. And I was like, but wait, we have materials in those languages. So to be able to send a German physician Turkish materials on Nash so that he could talk to the family as a whole about the disease before even thought about how to connect them to a trial. But ultimately, they would participate in that trial. That was really exciting for me. I felt like we were doing really impactful things for the field. And it may be a different answer than people who are saying, well, can you recruit for this trial? But can we create all the necessary pieces in the environment in which clinical trial recruitment could be successful? I think if that was the question, we'd come up with better answers. So I want to go back to Dr. Powell and then to Alicia. How can we create this better, more receptive ecosystem for NASH patients to participate in trials, if that's right for them? We've talked a bit about the physician relationships, awareness of the disease, being connected into care, having a physician relationship that can be trusted, hopefully patient mentors that they get to fill in all the blanks. But I know both of you have used different types of technology and have been involved in the weeds of trials. And so maybe, Alicia, tell us about how technology can help once we have all this warm and wonderful community built. It really comes down to once you've established community, you've got that sort of consistent touch point and the ability to communicate with them. And then it's really sort of taking it from there and furthering the education with the community and letting them know that clinical trials could potentially be an option for care. It should be sort of weaved into the way that they're managing their disease and really allow for further learning and further education to take place and create almost like a registry or some sort of offering where a person can put information and set specific parameters or timelines for getting more information or being gently reminded every few weeks or months about different opportunities that might be out there and just allow for that sort of continual engagement opportunity or that 
continual touch point that really takes that relationship to the next step. So always building on education, always building on what opportunities are out there and use tools like a registry or some sort of online community platform that allows for this rich, very dynamic information exchange to continue to take place and give patients the opportunities to meet other patients and talk about their experiences. Education is not a one-time thing. It has to evolve. It has to keep growing. And there's so many tools out there that would allow us to do that, that we can really take advantage of. The biggest barrier to that is just spend the time and energy that it, it makes to set that up and get it going. But it's there. In the registry wars, where is the right place to have this information? And maybe right isn't the correct word. What is one of the most successful or productive ways to have the information? Because it could be held in many places and many medical centers want to hold the data, hold the registry. Sometimes medical societies want to hold the data in the registry. Research networks or CROs want to hold the data and the registry or patient advocacy associations have done a great job with the registries. So speak to that a little bit. We need to flip the model on this in a big way because you're touching on something that's happening in the breast cancer communities right now that every single nonprofit, patient advocacy organization, sponsors, tech companies, are, they're launching registries and they're trying to convince patients that their registries are the best. And what's really happening is patients are becoming extraordinarily frustrated because now it's bad enough for us to try to keep track of our electronic health records, but now we've got 20 different registries we have to sign up for to find information about trials or even information about the disease. So I think somebody needs to take a bold step in some of these disease states and say, listen, we'll split the cost of a registry or we'll work with you to build a joint registry so there's one registry for the disease state and and allow for collaborations and relationships with all stakeholders to take place and allow for that true one-time opportunity uh, where you're not competing on patients any longer. You're truly trying to elevate the patient experience and give them one place to go that everybody can draw from. You're not exhausting the patients. You're not burning patients out. You're not frustrating them because they've got to check 20 different registries or get 25 different email missives about a new trial that might work for them when it's just, it's not the right answer. So who can be the true patient champion step forward and say, the time is now for, you know, a disease statewide registry or a collaboration where we can truly service the patients. I love that. And I do think that we see examples. One of my rock star role models that I think we all have is Kathy Giusti. And one of the things that I admire so much about her and what she did in her disease state was she set the ground rules for how the data would be shared. So you couldn't keep it siloed in this, that, and the other. You had to participate. You had to share. So I absolutely think that there needs to be a focus on what is best for the patient. What is best to advance the disease state the fastest and get the answers if possible. And I, I want to ask a question to Dr. Powell. Would that help having the infrastructure already set in a more even playing field in the registry area and maybe more of a service wraparound to be able to participate in clinical trials? All you would need are, you know, these five things. We understand you're busy. You may not have your own study coordinator, but it'd be really easy for this physician, for you to then participate in this larger effort because we have a, a more centralized, a more easy way. And you'd be able to get the data. You wouldn't have to give up the relationship with your patient, but you could participate in research with fewer startup costs and recreating the wheel for each study or each time somebody came knocking at your door. Would that help something like that? Or what would help physicians participate? Well, you're asking me a question that really relates to what I've been working on for the last five years. And 
I mentioned at the beginning that I was chief medical officer for Norax Health. And what we've done and what we are doing, and tell me if I'm going offline on this, but as I said before, we want to train physicians. Any physician that has the trust of patients, anyone who will, are willing, we want to train them to understand what clinical research is about and why it is important and why even if the physician is not going to be investigated, they need to be knowledgeable enough about clinical research to be a, a reasonable resource to their patients with respect to participation. We want to create more people to be involved in the research, but we also want to create knowledgeable people in the community, physicians who enjoy the trust of patients so they can respond to physician questions. So the other thing we're doing is, as we said, we've initiated the process of creating the training program that's easily accessible to the physician. You know, hey, they have a lot of schedule, a lot of things they got to do, but we got to make this easier accessible to them. The other thing is to create some to what Alicia was talking about, we're creating, working to use technology to create the virtual community around that physician. Who are those physicians? Who are those patients that trust that physician that can share information constantly, sustainable information about health and disease? And then, as I said, maybe clinical trials, but then to help them and empower them to take better care of themselves and understand their disease, hopefully prevent disease, but also create opportunities to share information with them about clinical trials that they may qualify for. So that's the approach that we're taking with Norax Health to, to create, like I said, more physicians who will work with investigators, be a supportive network for other investigators so that the patients, their patients would like to participate in trials. You maintain the connection with your patient, but you also have the ability to share information about other trials in their community. And then, as I said before, the virtual community that helps that physician maintain the connection and give them information for the continual management of their diseases empower them to understand and do the things that they can to contribute to the management of their disease. And that by virtue of creating this community, we also create the ability for information to be shared with patients uh, about clinical trials that may be relevant to that particular patient. You know, Dr. Powell, this makes me think of a new metric for trial sponsors when they're looking at CROs. So it's not so much the number of sites, but really thinking through a new way of measuring or assessing and measuring recruitment potential by how big and diverse their network is around that site. How good a job have they done about connecting to the physicians, the relevant physicians of the disease state that would actually feed into not just could you grab those patients, but is there a relationship with them that's is there that virtual community that you talked about? And can you look at the recruitment potential of each investigator site by this network of virtual community? And these are the kinds of things we did with respect to vaccine. We were called upon to engage. Not Everybody was talking to patients and the patients, some of them were hearing, some of them weren't hearing. But as you say, the church, if you engage the entirety of the community, that the people that have the trust of those patients, that to be a part of that network, you're going to have what we found that we have a little bit better chance of getting people to understand and listen. First of all, they got to listen. They got to tune in and say <laughs> that, that you're talking to them. I've done some work where people say you weren't talking to me when the whole campaign was about talking to them, but you weren't talking to them because you weren't talking to the people they wanted to listen to. I think there's so much truth right there. So as we bring this to a close, which I want to do to be respectful of your time, I'm so grateful for you all being here today. It seems what I've heard for us to be able to get every person, because if one in four people in the U.S. and globally is walking around with some form of fatty liver disease or NASH, we need to be talking to everybody about this. So if every person knows about NASH and hears that from a trusted advisor, friend, community member, community health worker, or community digital health worker, which is a new thing I'm trying to coin, uh, if they hear repetitively in places that they already go, that participating in a NASH clinical trial, particularly at this point in the state of the field, when there's not a 
drug yet, should be considered as a normal part of care. That every doctor is prepared to have that same conversation with them, whether it's their primary care doctor, the endocrinologist, or gastroenterologist, certainly a hepatologist, clearly. But by the time you've reached a hepatologist, you're in trouble. Uh, I know that from personal experience. <laughs> so if it can be more, if you can just pull it back, back into the community. So this is just a conversation that people are having, but that they're productive conversations with the tools and resources that they need to have it. It seems to me that's how we're going to get to the 25,000 people in a much shorter period of time to answer the questions that we need to have answered. Is that right? Yes. I'm on to something? Definitely. Okay. Yep. <laughs> Jeff loves, and he knows that I love nothing more than to hear, Donna, you're right. But no, I've just listened to the experts here. So as we sign off, the one thing that you would love the people who pay to have NASH clinical trials done to know or do differently. Jeff, Dr. Powell, Alicia, because that's how you all on my, on my little screen here. But one thing that people who spend all this money on doing the trials, what should they do differently? Uh, thank you for letting me go first here at the end. I would say that they need to realize this is not an overnight resolution. Relationships of all sorts take work. You need to collaborate and partner with patients programmatically in terms of the design, the protocol review, where to go, what language to use, who are your local community folks that you can partner with. You either do that, you do the best practices, or you're still going to be stuck on kind of the clinical street corner with your cup out, hoping that someone just comes by and drops some patients in. <laughs> Uh, we need to take you on the road, Jeff. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Dr. Paul, what is the one thing that you'd like for people who pay all this money into these trials to do? Well, the thing I think about is a sustainable presence in educating the people about their disease and about clinical research. Not just at the time you want to do a trial, but just a sustainable presence and maintain the level of creating a level of awareness and understanding of what we do as part of research. And too often that doesn't come until, you know, you want something from them. It should be baseline that you're going out and educating people about what you do and how we do research and how we develop medication and why we do it the way we do it. What Dr. Powell just said was absolutely spot on. Invest in the community, not the trial. If you're at a point where you're ready to participate in a trial and it's the first time you've stepped into the community or reached out to a community, it's too late. You're already behind. So stop thinking of a trial as a transactional event and start thinking about the work that you do as a community building opportunity. So invest in the community, um, invest in the research that you're doing, but don't spend your precious dollars trying to recruit patients when that money could be better spent building true foundational elements in the communities that you want to have participate in your trials. Fantastic. So Thank you all. And and thank you, Roger, for allowing me to take over your podcast. I'll think about uh, giving it back, maybe. Um, this has been so much fun. So we'll see. It may be like little story, little known story, fun fact. Roger likes to have fun facts. So when I graduated from Georgetown Law School, I got to hold the university seal. This was this fantastic scepter. And after the procession, I just walked off with it. I <laughs> waited all my life for that scepter, and I was not going to give it back. And one of my friends who worked in the administrative office had to come find me after and relieve me of my scepter. <laughs> you have to come That's find me. Awesome. Nobody who knows me is surprised at that story, you see. All, all, all right. So thank you so much for all of the wisdom and wit that you have shared with us today as we take on the non-insurmountable, by any means, challenge of finding a patient for every NASH trial or finding a trial for every patient or really just rethinking NASH research itself to serve everyone better. So thank you. 
And now, back to Roger. Wow, wasn't that great? So, I want to thank Donna for giving me my podcast back. I have a suspicion if I do this too often, y'all are going to rise up and demand that I let her keep it permanently. But yeah, that was great. Hope you enjoyed it half as much as I did. Since I've had time away, there's not too much to report this week. I have a funny story about how this episode came together and a few highlights for upcoming weeks. Reasonably short and sweet. If you wonder why Roger is always so grateful to Mike Wilson, listen to this. First, some sad information. Our audio engineer, Magic Mike Wilson, lost his grandmother last weekend and has been celebrating her life and mourning her loss with family all week. Therefore, he was not around to engineer this episode. So Polly Lee and I engineered what you're about to hear. It's given me a newfound appreciation for just how much Mike brings us. Second, it gets worse. Donna's original track was virtually inaudible. So I had the episode transcribed. She and I went back and re-recorded her pieces and I spliced comments into the live episode. Mike could make all this sound seamless and brilliant. Me, uh, not so much. So I welcome feedback on what you heard in terms of differences in quality or clarity and things you think I can learn besides always make sure Mike is around or has a really great backup. Time to celebrate. I may have mentioned this previously, but last week we hit our 20,000th Buzzsprout download. Also, this coming Friday, July 23rd, marks our one-year anniversary with Buzzsprout, which dramatically improved distribution and access. Next week's episode will celebrate these events by looking back over the history of the podcast and sharing some favorite moments. Louise and I will be hosting should be a fun listen for everyone. And after that? Episodes on tap for the rest of the summer include one focusing on the recent review of NAFLD comprehensive care models, another on advances in drug development, and a third on pediatric NAFLD, probably with a lot of talk about sugary drinks. Other topics we're developing focus on clinical outcomes, cost effectiveness, and advances in diagnostics. Trust me, there's plenty to talk about. How is the live audience initiative proceeding? Quite nicely, thanks. I hope to discuss it next week in detail as part of the 20K download celebration. And with that, I want to thank Donna for developing such great content and hosting so brilliantly, Alicia and James, who I look forward to meeting, and Jeff, whose company I enjoy thoroughly, for being such great guests. An extra special shout out to Polly, who improvised along with me so we could get this episode up on schedule. Heartfelt condolences and welcome back to Mike. And as always, thanks to Eric for the things he does every week that make this so good. We will post the next episode on July 27th. Rumor has it there may be a champagne toast somewhere on the episode, so come prepared. Until then, stay safe, surf on, bye-bye, see you on the podcast. You've been listening to the Surfing the Nash Tsunami podcast. Have any questions for the surfers? You can send them to surfingnash.com and we will answer on the podcast or the website. Thanks for listening. See you next week on the podcast.